This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. It's, it's wonderful to be here again for the uh, second lecture in the Evolution Matters uh, lecture series. And uh, I'd like, by way of uh, introduction, to first of all tell you a little bit about our Division of Biological Sciences at UCSD, which is composed of four different sections. We believe that the type of basic science research that we do um, is a foundation and an agent for change. A lot of the research that we do is very relevant to health, the economy, and the environment. It's uh, very important to point out that these types of lectures in which scientific content, scientific concepts are, are presented to the public for your edification and to enable you to understand the, the beauty of nature, what natural history is really about. We can't achieve this type of thing without partnerships with our sponsors. And so, of course, together with our division and the natural, um, the natural History Museum here, I'd also really like to thank, in particular, um, Amelin Corporation, who are, have been a, a long-term sponsor of this lecture series, and also Kiram Farmer, without which we simply wouldn't be able to mount something like this and tell you about the kinds of ideas and, and science that we deal with. Um, after Dr. McGuinness's talk tonight, which will be on the topic of embryos and development and evolution, there are three more talks to come, and I urge you to, to come and join them because they really provide a diverse swath of, of science and evolutionary biology that I think you'll find very interesting. The net talk will be from Christopher Wills in our department. He'll be talking about evolution of complexity. He'll be followed by Marty Yanofsky, who'll be telling you about the genetics and evolution of, of the toolkit inside of plants that leads to flower formation. And then the series will end in April uh, with a colleague of ours from the medical school, Ajit Vaki, who will be telling us about the genetics of primate evolution. And this really brings me uh, tonight to, to why we're all here, which is, is to hear uh, our speaker, Bill McGuinness, who, as we talk about standing on the shoulders of giants, Dr. McGuinness really is a, a giant amongst giants. I think what sets the, sets the stage for Bill's lecture is to look at the words that Darwin wrote um, near the end of, of Origin of Species, where he, uh, where he put forward this, this beautiful prose. Whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning... Endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. And Dr. McGuinness, his research really looks at the mechanisms of how such a diversity of form and function is found in the animal kingdom. I think it's important to realize the, the, the rapid rate of change that occurred in science and evolutionary thought following Darwin. People in the early part of the 20th century discovered the power of, of fruit fly genetics. The, the understanding of genetics and hereditary allowed people to more clearly understand the three concepts that Darwin was putting together, that of natural selection, of hereditary, and of variation. And it led to this concept of the modern synthesis, where a, a view of genetics as being an underlying way in which evolution worked 
moved us forward in our understanding of evolutionary biology. But then that was capped later on by the merging of another field into genetics, which was the field of, of embryology and development. And it's that field in which Dr. McGuinness has been really one of the leaders and, and one of the people who has provided some of the key changes. He hails originally from the great state of Missouri, and he got his, his BS later on in San Jose State, his PhD from our sister organization, the University of California at Berkeley, and he performed his postdoctoral work at the University of um, Basel in Switzerland. He became a professor at Yale University, where he was there for 12 years, and we were very lucky to capture him at the University of California, San Diego in 1995, where he's been a professor and also holds the prestigious Herbert Stern Endowed Chair in Biological Sciences. Like all great scientists, uh, Dr. McGuinness has really been recognized by a number of incredibly prestigious awards, including the, the uh, Presidential Young Investigator Award from the National Science Foundation. His work, as he'll tell you tonight, really centers around the mechanisms, the genetic toolkit by which changes in form and function of, of organisms can occur. And he really made one of the most pioneering discoveries, together with his colleague Mike Levine, of a set of genes called the homeobox genes or Hox genes. And Bill, and it's hard to really put this across, prior to the 1980s, people looked at this great diversity of organisms and said, well, surely the genes that drive the development of those organisms are going to be different. A fly looks so different from a mouse. And what Dr. McGuinness did was to actually show people that there's a genetic toolkit in common from flies all the way through to vertebrates that actually drives the form and function and is the substrate, if you like, for the action of evolution on, on, on creating a, a diverse set of organisms. And it transformed a whole field which is now known as EvoDevo, or evolutionary developmental biology. Well, rather than give his talk for him, I'm going to let him really tell you the story. And I'd like you to join me in welcoming Dr. McGuinness, who will be telling us about embryos and evolution. Well, I'm honored to be here. And uh, it's very nice to uh, see so many people interested in this subject. Um, Steve's comment about uh, standing on the shoulders of giants uh, reminds me of a photograph that I have that I often use, although I didn't bring it uh, for this seminar. And that photograph shows me and a couple of my buddies about 20 years ago, and we're actually kneeling in front of two Nobel Prize winners. And uh, so the, the story we always tell about is that uh, Mike Levine and I, buddies, we were, uh, you know, kneeling at the feet of giants. That is, we never could really see as far as they could, and we won't be able to see as far as they could, but it was, uh, you know, a wonderful experience to be kneeling at those Nobel Prize winner knees, I can tell you. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about embryos and evolution. And the central problem, uh, the wondrous thing about development is that all of us and uh, all animals start as single cells, single fertilized cells, that rapidly divide, start to form different tissues and so forth, 
But this is an embryo, a depiction of a human embryo, a diagram of one. And after only nine months, you form this incredible, harmonious, complex organism, beginning with this single cell. And this is self-organizing information, a wondrous system, from one cell to trillions of cells. Trillions of cells. And, you know, while losing no part of its wonder, it becomes a little more understandable when you realize that developing animals have been practicing this process for about the past billion years. And for most of the time, they've been, and for most of those organisms, they've failed at the process. So something's gone wrong. And so there's been a natural selection to get this system to work. And it's been working over and over and over, failing miserably much of the time, with only rare improvements. But out of all those improvements, out of all that failure, has come organisms as wondrous as this little human organism. Darwin, as you can't really give a seminar on embryos and evolution without mentioning Darwin. And this is uh, Darwin. A uh, picture of Darwin right here when he was uh, in his 40s. It's actually before he published The Origin of Species. And all scientists who work on evolution try to find some affinity between themselves and Darwin. And I've been looking for this for, for many years, some affinity that I might claim. And uh, after looking at this picture for a while, I realized one thing I can truly claim, maybe the only thing, is we both, you know, started working on comb-overs at about the same age. So, some things never change. Anyway, Darwin did recognize that uh, embryos and evolution were intertwined. And, uh, you know, the forces that shape and improve embryos was recognized by him. And he drew on many different sources of inspiration when he was uh, developing his theory of natural selection. But I think one that a lot of people don't appreciate is that uh, Darwin, was, Darwin started to think about natural selection, not while he was sailing around on the HMS Beagle, sailing around the world, but only after he came back to England and thought for a long time about, about uh, diversity and animal and plant development. But the other thing that was happening in Victorian England at the time was that uh, there was all sorts of extreme artificial selection. There was a middle class developing, and there was a lot of people with nothing much else to do. And so they started selecting variants of pigeons and uh, dogs, and just over a few generations getting this incredible diversity in shape and behavior and size and so forth. And, uh, in fact, when you read The Origin of Species, Darwin, that's the initial justification that he uses to develop his theory is that, is that and he writes a lot about pigeons in The Origin of Species, and I used to skip these parts. You know, I'd try to read The Origin of Species, oh my God, there's another passage about pigeons. And I really don't care that much about pigeons, but uh, I finally got an iPod and uh, listened to The Origin of Species, and the pigeon parts got much more interesting, I can tell you. So, anyway, so Darwin, uh, I always like to tell the undergraduates this, and, and it, reminds my, it reminds me to think about it, is that, you know, there's a perversion of Darwinian evolution that it's survival of the fittest, and it definitely is not survival of the fittest, only in a very, 
you know, it certainly is San Diego defines fit. And so uh, what it is is it's a selection for good parents. And the reason for that is that in order for your genes uh, to be passed on to the next generation, you first of all have to survive through your reproductive years, years, and that's certainly a requirement. You have to reproduce as often as possible. That will help keep your genes going through the uh, human populations. But the other thing you have to do is make sure that whatever genes you pass on in the vessels of your children, that those genes survive to the following generation. So there's many complex things that are, you know, that are in natural selection. Darwin wrote about all of them and understood them all very deeply. But uh, I always tell my undergraduate students about this, that you, know, you can't simplify natural selection to fit organisms. It's just much more complex and uh, much more interesting because of that. And Darwin did write, when he, he was trying to convince a scientist in the United States who never actually ended up believing in evolution, but he was an embryologist, and Darwin said, uh, embryology to me is the strongest class of facts in favor of the change of forms during evolution. And uh, so he was really thinking about evolution, but there's no way really for him to put it together with uh, embryology. There were people who tried to do this, and one was Carl Ernst von Bayer, uh, a German embryologist uh, in the mid-1800s. And this is a famous picture, that uh, set of pictures that von Bayer drew, where he noted that even from organisms that had very, very different adult and forms, all the way from fish to human beings, there's a piglet here, chicken, turtle. If you looked at very early stages of embryogenesis, uh, all those embryos look very similar, just looking from the outside. Now, he actually had, did some artistic license here. There's, later, people have tried to find exactly what stage he was looking at to find these similarities, and they've had some difficulty. Uh, but he was right, in a sense. And uh, the story is he came to this realization, as many of us do doing science by accident, he had uh, put some embryos into uh, some spirit jars in his laboratory, and, uh, he, but he forgot to put on the labels. And so he was looking around, and he said, you know, where's those chicken embryos that I collected the other day? And he couldn't tell fish from fowl in his, uh, when he was looking inside his spirit jars and uh, developed this uh, idea that... Uh, the earlier you went in development, the more similar organisms looked, uh, and uh, so that there was a convergence point where um, evolution uh, had started with and then uh, diverged uh, body forms after that point. Uh, von Baer was a bit of a joker, and um, so actually one of the articles he wrote was um, about... Uh, Evolution from the point of view of a chicken. So if, a, if there were chicken evolutionary biologists and embryologists, what would they be saying? How would they be looking at evolution? And uh, what, he, what he found, what he wrote this article about is he uh, uh, thought he uh, had this chicken embryologist looking at chicken and human embryos. And, uh, and noting that... Uh, it must be true that chickens were more advanced than humans because uh, when you look at the two embryos, when you develop 
you know, at the early stage, for example, uh, neither of these uh, organisms, neither of these embryos, has a beak. Uh, and when you finally end up with a human, uh, it still doesn't have a beak, but a chicken has developed a beak by the time it gets to an advanced stage. So, therefore, it must be, you know, a more advanced creature than humans. Now, what I'm going to talk about is how looking deeper and deeper into organisms and finally looking at the molecular level can uh, really uh, tell us a lot about the unity of developmental patterning, how you form embryos and uh, how they've changed during evolution. But the basic paradigm to start with, and this doesn't depend on any embryology or, uh, or genetics, really, except for some bacterial genetics, is that uh, organisms um, uh, develop by turning genes on and off in the right patterns during uh, embryogenesis. So if you imagine, here's a, here's a set of human chromosomes laid out here, and you've got some genes here on the chromosomes. And if we expand and look at a specific gene, uh, you've got the uh, structural part of the gene, which is actually going to make a protein or uh, some in this example, I've got a gene for making the skin on the back of the hands of this embryo. And upstream of this, you've got some regulatory DNA software for this gene. So this is a, this is a piece of DNA uh, taken from this part of the chromosome. And in order to get this gene expressed in the right place at the right time in the right cells, you've got all these uh, sequences upstream, these DNA sequences upstream, that sum together a lot of historical information uh, from previous cell generations that, uh, where you've got proteins that bind to these different regions called transcription factors. And together, the summation of this information uh, gets integrated, and so this gene gets turned on only in these cells. So this is the, whole, this is the basic paradigm. It's, it's great to have a paradigm, but it doesn't really tell you exactly what genes are doing this, how they're changing during evolution, and exactly what those genes are doing inside cells to program development. It's, uh, it's just a concept. But uh, starting in about the 1970s, the powerful tools of molecular biology arose, and scientists began to be able to look at embryos at a much deeper level than could von Bayer. They started to be able to look right at the molecular level, at the genes and at the proteins that were controlling which parts of the body developed into which parts of the adult, and which parts of the embryo are going to give rise to head, tail, and so forth. And uh, this shows one example, which is, this is a chicken embryo, so this is the head of a chicken embryo. Uh, these are the developing vertebrae here, and uh, belly. You can see the developing limbs growing out here. But this shows a particular gene, one of the Hox genes of the chicken, and you can see that this Hox gene is only active in the region uh, of the anterior-posterior axis, the head-tail axis of this chicken, that's going to develop into the thoracic region, and the thoracic region that doesn't make limbs, the limbless part. And we're going to learn more about this family of genes in just a moment, these, these Hox family of genes. This is Hox C6 gene activity. And really, the, the major point of my talk tonight is to tell you about how looking at the molecular level allows you to see things that you couldn't see before. We're no smarter than embryologists were 200 years ago, or geneticists uh, were 50 years ago. <laughs> but uh, 
we do have new tools. So the organism that I want to introduce you to is uh, the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. This is an insect that uh, lives uh, on and has been following humans around the world, actually, for the past 100,000 years or so, living off our garbage, uh, rotting fruit. And uh, it's a six-legged uh, fly, nice eyes, nice thorax, nice abdomen. And it's hard to believe that such a bizarre-looking organism could tell us much about the development of humans, but as we'll see, it did. The fruit fly does have some enormous advantages for experimental studies of development. It breeds fast, it's cheap, and nobody I've ever met, not the most fervent animal rights advocate, any right to, right to life advocate, has any qualms whatsoever about the extermination of millions of fruit flies or adults in the course of an afternoon. And my lab has gigantic jars full of alcohol and oil with maybe hundreds of thousands of fruit fly corpses. Genocidal activity on fruit flies. <laughs> so here's the slide I like to show, which um, you know, it tells the reasoning powers of scientists. <laughs> so before about 1980 or so, uh, Basically, embryologists and geneticists and most people thought that there was no chance that fruit, fruit flies could tell you anything about human development or mammal development. And the reason why is because the embryos and the adults look so different. And uh, so the analogy is that, uh, you know, you're not going to learn, you know, you're as likely to learn something about the development of a human being from a fruit fly as you are going to learn about something about the construction of an aircraft carrier from looking at a piano. And uh, this turns out not to be true, but uh, they were so different in shape between a human, uh, and these, there are some similarities here. Uh, you know, this organism can fly, and so can this one, at least in the movies. <laughs> but this organism seems so much more sophisticated in brain power, size, and all sorts of ways, that it just seemed incredible that the fruit fly could inform us there. And just try to get you know, a fruit fly to play the piano or to steer an aircraft carrier. It's just not going to do it. Or even stay out of your wine glass. It's just not going to happen. And uh, many, many geneticists uh, who've worked on fruit flies have made enormous contributions, but I just want to point out one major one. Uh, who was from Southern California. He was Ed Lewis, was a professor at Caltech for many decades. He died a couple years ago. But uh, there were biologists like Ed who thought that fruit flies were very interesting animals, no matter how bizarre they appeared from the standpoint of developmental biology, and uh, could be useful to learn new lessons about the genes that control development. Ed was a brilliant creative man. He had a connection to La Jolla because he used to, uh, to San Diego, because he used to drive down from uh, Caltech fairly often and stay in La Jolla and play his flute with some of his friends. He, was, uh, he played in chamber music, uh, and just he liked to play music with his friends. He's a great guy, a wonderful, gentle, uh, brilliant guy, and a pioneering geneticist. What Ed did was isolate some mutations that would dramatically transform the fruit fly body plan. So here's a normal 
two-winged uh, fruit fly, Drosophila fruit fly, and it found some mutants like Bithorax mutants that instead of having one set of wings in their bodies had two sets of wings. So they had complete duplications of this body segment that developed wings in place of another body segment back here. It's so small it's almost invisible. But in this mutant, in a single gene, you could get this uh, dramatic change in body pattern. And these mut mutants have been co uh, what are called homeotic transformations because they, they create the, uh, the right parts in the wrong places or parts that look right in the wrong places. And uh, they've come to become Hox, called Hox genes and Hox mutations. And there's other uh, genes that can mutate to give similar body transformations in the fruit fly. So here's the head of an adult fruit fly, not a very appetizing uh, aspect here. But even uglier is a fruit fly embryo, that, a fruit fly adult that carries mutations in the fly antennapedia gene. And when this single gene is mutated, so that you turn on the antennapedia gene in, the, in these cells before they develop into antennae, what you see is an extra leg growing out of the, where the antenna would be. This fly has a normal set of legs on its thorax, but now it has an extra piece of thorax, the, the, the uh, th second thoracic legs growing out in place of its antennae. So these uh, Hox genes that could mutate to give these homeotic mutant phenotypes, these body transformations, were cataloged by geneticists in Tom Kaufman's lab and, and uh, Ed Lewis's lab and other people's labs. And they were found to map uh, in a cluster on the third chromosome of the fruit fly. And uh, amazingly, they mapped in the same order as the body regions whose development they controlled. So this ANTP gene, the antennapedia gene that I showed that uh, on the previous slide, that when you turn this gene on in the head, you get an extra copy of this leg mapped next to a gene that controlled the, the next most anterior body segment, which mapped next to a gene that controlled the posterior part of the head. And then if you go backwards, you've got a gene that controls the, the last thoracic segment, the anterior part of the abdomen, and so on and so forth. These genes were also found uh, to be molecular relatives in the sense that they all contained a DNA sequence called the homeobox. So these, homeo, this, these blue stripes show that each one of these genes uh, have this homeobox se sequence which defined them as molecular relatives. And the other thing about these genes that uh, once you had these genes, the DNA for these genes isolated and cloned, you could make large amounts of it, label it, and throw it onto embryos and see where the gene was active and inactive. Uh, you could look to see where the genes were turned on and off, and it turned out the Hox genes, uh, uh, which agreed with their genetic functions were expressed in zones of cells on the head-tail axis of early fly embryos. So this shows three of the, the head Hox genes expressed in different regions, turned on in different regions of the head. And this is the boundary between the head and the thorax, and you've got a thorac thoracic Hox gene turned on here, and you see these other genes, red and green genes, and finally the light blue genes turned on in the extreme posterior regions, uh, this gene right here controls the development of where the genitalia are going to develop in the fruit fly embryo. The other thing isolating the DNA from these genes allowed 
us to do, and by us, this is actually something that I did a long time ago with Mike Levine in Switzerland, was to see if other organisms uh, had um, genes that were similar. And so we used some labeled DNA from fruit flies that came from these uh, hox genes in fruit flies and tested whether or not chickens, mice, humans, and a variety of other organisms, anything we could get, uh, anything we could grind up and isolate DNA from. We didn't grind up any humans, by the way, but uh, we did get some DNA from somewhere. I can't remember where, actually. Uh, but what these, what these spots mean, what these bands mean, is that there were some genes that were very closely related to these uh, fly hox uh, genes that were present in the chromosomes of humans, mice, chickens. And at the time, this was, uh, you know, people, scientists always say, well, I did a crazy experiment. People thought it was, you know, not going to work, blah, 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 you know. Uh, but uh, I'm going to claim this was actually true in this case. <laughs> um, uh, to some extent, we actually used some of these DNAs uh, the first time around as controls. We thought, well, there's no chance these fly genes will actually be present in mammal genomes. So we'll just throw, we got some human DNA around mouse DNA and so forth. And uh, we were surprised to see some faint signals, and so we tried to get this to work, and it did. And the upshot of all this, uh, a long history of uh, studies in, on, the, on, the, on these genes and, and uh, where they're at in the chromosome and so forth, both in fruit flies and in mammals. This is a depiction of a mammalian embryo here led to the finding that uh, the fruit fly hox genes in this lineup on the chromosome and mammal hox genes, whether from a mouse or a human, they're pretty much the same, are arranged on the chromosome in exactly the same way. So these are molecular relatives. They're, they're members of the same gene family. The hox4 gene of a fruit fly, which is called DFD, is actually more closely related to a mouse hox4 gene or a human Hox4 gene than it is to any of its other relatives in the fruit fly genome. And the, so the, what that means is that the last common ancestor of the fruit fly and the mammal, uh, which I've drawn as some kind of worm-like creature here, already had a cluster of these genes in its chromosomes, and presumably those genes were doing the same things that they're doing in fruit flies and mice today. Well, now, are, they, are these genes in, in uh, mammals, are they really doing something similar to the fruit fly genes? Can you see these dramatic changes in development in uh, mutants for these genes? And you can. I'm not going to show you a lot of data on this, but uh, one of the uh, uh, phenotypes, one of the changes that you can see in humans where you have mutations in Hox genes are these... Uh, changes in uh, digit number in uh, developing limbs. So the Hox genes are also expressed in the, in the developing limb buds of, of uh, vertebrate embryos, uh, including us. And this is your uh, anterior-posterior axis of your, of your hand. So your thumb is your anterior digit. Your little finger is your posterior digit. And this is the ventral part of your hand. So these Hox genes are also involved in diversifying uh, your digit identities on both hand and feet, and also uh, in, in controlling the number of digits that you have. And so humans that have, uh, actually have very, quite subtle mutations in uh, one of these genes, the Hox D13 gene of humans, 
can either have polydactyly, so they can have extra digits on their hands and feet, or they can have what's called syndactyly, where you see progressive reductions in digits. These are, of course, much more severe uh, uh, birth defects from these uh, from children that have these uh, defects. There's many other examples that I could show you, but I can. I just want to make the point that that humans and uh, fruit flies use the same system for controlling their body pattern using these Hox genes, and and this kind of depicts this in a very simplistic form. That uh, when you think about the anterior-posterior axis of a fruit fly, I'm sorry, a fruit fly <laughs> and a human. <laughs> now I've got it mixed up. Uh, you can uh, think about the different uh, body parts as being controlled by the different Hox genes uh, from the head to the tail. And one uh, dramatic experiment, I'm not sure exact, I'm still not sure exactly how meaningful it was, it was done in my lab a few years ago by a graduate student, Urema Molitsky, was uh, he, he took a uh, mouse Hox gene, it was later done with a human Hox gene, that normally controlled uh, the thorax of the human. It was expressed in the, in the, in the thorac, thoracic region of mammal embryos. And he put it into a fruit fly. And what he was able to do was to uh, get a mimic of the fly antennapedia phenotype. So he took one of the mouse um, uh, and, and later done with human Hox genes that would normally give human thoracic structures, direct the formation of human thoracic structures. But what he got was uh, just like in uh, the fly thoracic gene being put the wrong place, you got legs, fly legs, growing out of the fly head. And I remember I uh, very excited, I called my parents up about this uh, result <laughs> about 12 years ago. And, uh, and I said, well, it's fantastic, we put this human gene into a fruit fly, it does something. And you know, my father said, you did what? He thought I was... Uh, I had gone over to the dark side. <laughs> but this, this experiment actually has an important meaning, and the meaning is that the function of these genes is not to specify a particular body structure. It's to provide some kind of uh, positional coordinate. Some kind of, they have kind of an abstract function. So they're going to instruct an early embryo. You're developing in the middle of the embryo. You should develop thoracic structures. But it doesn't say what kind of thoracic structures. That's dependent on the context in which organism they're expressed. So if you turn on the thoracic gene in the fruit fly, it'll give you fruit fly thoracic structures. And uh, so I just want to conclude by saying, you know, there's a very good case that this tells us something important about evolution in the sense that the, our last ancestor with fruit flies used a system that told that organism where to put head, where to put thorax, and where to put tail. And we've diverged about 700 million years from that last common ancestor, but you're still using the same genes to do pretty much the same job. Evolution doesn't throw away, it modifies it, it changes it, but it doesn't throw away a system that's working very well to do something so very important for animal development. Now, the, the discovery of the Hox genes uh, sparked uh, a lot of work to find other such genes, uh, particularly those that were home, with homeoboxes, that little homeobox sequence that was related to the Hox genes. And uh, many of these little relatives of 
other families, uh, cousins, uh, second cousins, uh, very distant relatives were found. So here's the little Hawks family, and then there's the Chalks family, and the Sox family, the Fox family. I'm not making this up. These are real names of genes. And the Pax family. You know, Dr. Seuss would have had a great time with, this, with these genes. And uh, many of these genes also have been found to control very uh, important developmental patterning functions in both mammals and fruit flies. I just want to show you some examples of this. So one example is the Pax6 gene. So the fruit flies, both fruit flies and humans, have Pax6 genes. These are homeobox genes, but they're distant relatives of the Hox genes. And uh, a fruit fly that's missing uh, uh, has mutations in the Pax6 gene goes from having a nice, normal set of uh, omatidia of uh, normal fruit fly eye to having a very ugly, distorted head I can't even tell where the eye should be in this fruit fly, but uh, it's missing its eye completely. Humans that have subtle mutations in the Pax6 gene develop uh, a syndrome called aniridia. So here's the normal iris of a human eye, and uh, these mutations in Pax6 uh, cause a loss of the iris and um, uh, severe visual problems, not surprisingly. There are uh, more severe mutants in human Pax6, but they result in such uh, distressing abnormalities to human eye and head development that I don't want to really show them. There was a similar uh, experiment done with Pax6, really showing this deep similarity in programming function for these genes. Uh, some uh, students in Walter Gehring's lab in Switzerland took a copy of the human Pax6 gene and turned it on in fly legs, what we're developing in the fly legs. And you can see that this Pax6 gene could actually generate other eyes in place of the legs that would normally develop in this fruit fly. This fruit fly is very dead. It's not going to see out of its legs or anything else. But uh, these, if you look at them even, uh, you know, very carefully, they, they do look like, uh, you know, reasonably good copies of parts of the fly eye. And again, it makes this point that what this gene is doing and what it did in some ancient ancestor of both human and flies, it's telling some cells in the head uh, to develop a photosensory organ. It's not saying what kind of photosensory organ. It's saying these cells should make some photosensory cells. So if you turn it on in a human, it leads to the development of human eyes. If you turn it on in the, in the right place and it it's expressed only in those cells. If you turn it on into a fruit fly, it also makes a fly photosensory organ, uh, which is uh, this normal structure here and these extra structures here. There's an even more uh, amazing experiment, to me at least, where uh, a human, I'm going to call this the Limox gene. Uh, this is another homeobox, uh, distant relative of the flyhox genes. And if you mutate this, the fly limox gene, the gene's called apterus, you have no wings. So this is a wingless fruit fly. If you add back the fly apterus gene, so you turn on fly apterus in the, the cells that are going to develop into wings, you regenerate the wings. So you get a normal-looking fruit fly. An amazing thing, if you take a human apterus-like gene, so the human limox gene, and turn it on, in this mutant that normally has no wings, it gives you a fairly normal-looking set of wings on that fruit fly. Again, showing this deep evolutionary similarity in the patterning of, uh, 
of development and the control of uh, kind of abstract concepts. You know, this, this gene is an appendage promoting gene, but when you put it into a fruit fly, it makes a fruit fly appendage, and in humans, it helps to make uh, human appendages. And what all this adds up to is that, um, you know, our last common ancestor of all animals, including Darwin and uh, some lobsters and various other organisms, was a pretty sophisticated animal. It had a photosensory apparatus, probably had some appendages, certainly had complicated muscle blocks. It had a, it had a blood pumping organ. And it diversified its anterior-posterior axis, its head-tail axis, with a set of Hox genes, seven or eight Hox genes. Now, so the Hox genes are involved in specifying these developmental patterns. Do they have anything to do with uh, changing developmental fates? Do variation in Hox genes have anything to do with changing form during evolution, not just diversifying form during development of embryos? And uh, to introduce this, I want to talk about both microevolution and macroevolution. So almost all, micro, I mean, almost all evolutionary events take place by macroevolution. And this is a cartoon uh, student of mine drew, Matt Ronshagen, where he traced the evolution of steamboat Willie to Mi- Ma- Mickey Musculus uh, over, you know, about a 40-year period where this was a skinny little mouse and eventually became really a lot cuter and more muscular in microevolutionary steps. But if Steamboat went directly to this in, in uh, evolutionary parlance, this would be a macroevolutionary step. Macroevolution doesn't mean that an organism is changing uh, from, you know, children all, always look like their parents. You know, a child is always going to look a lot like its mother, you know, and so evolution is going to occur in relatively tiny steps. We don't know how tiny, but mostly tiny steps. Uh, and, uh, but macroevolution uh, refers to uh, these big changes that you see in evolution. So changes where uh, you see dramatic expansion in the size of the brain, or you see bipedalism instead of uh, walking around on all fours and so forth. Now again, fruit flies and arthropods in particular uh, provide a useful way to study this uh, question to ask whether or not uh, fruit flies and uh, whether these whether Hox genes and other genes of this type actually have any role in varying form during evolution as well as controlling it during embryogenesis. And the reason why uh, fruit flies and other arthropods are a useful system is that uh, arthropods are uh, have been a gigantic evolutionary experiment in limb number, shape, size, and function. Uh, and the arthropods, which is the, the, uh, the jointed limb, uh, arthropod means jointed limbs, uh, are you know, spiders, scorpions, insects, crustaceans, and millipedes. And you can see that the limbs, you know, have got eight legs on a spider, six legs and some beautiful wings on this butterfly, uh, many uh, limbs, uh, swimming legs and walking legs on crustaceans, and and a heck of a lot of limbs on these millipedes and centipedes, all of which have specialized them for certain environments and made sure that their children survived to the next generation. So a student of my lab, Matt Ronshagen, did an experiment where he took a gene. uh, So he wanted to test whether or not there could be changes in Hox 
proteins in Hox genes during evolution. So he took a gene from this organism. This is uh, brine shrimp, Artemia franciscana, which uh, is believed to be uh, very closely related or look very similar to the common ancestor of uh, crustaceans and insects. I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, insects, although they're incredibly diverse, they fly, you know, they get in your wine, they sting you, they do all these things. Uh, but they're essentially crustaceans that crawled up on land about 400 million years ago and then uh, diversified enormously in this open eco-space, this dry land, was just getting some plants and uh, started feeding, diversifying. And, uh, but they came, from, uh, they came from the sea. They came from a crustacean-like ancestor. We really don't know what that looked like, but uh, at least paleontologists and, and, uh, and molecular biologists believe it looked a lot like this uh, brine shrimp which has 11 sets of uh, swimming appendages on its uh, thorax and abdomen, whereas flies only have three. Now, do changes in Hox, could changes in Hox genes have done something uh, have, uh, to affect this change from a multi-limb creature to one with only six limbs, which occurred about 400 million years ago, or started about 400 million years ago? To do this, I have to introduce a little bit about uh, early fly appendage development. So, this is a fly embryo, this is the head, this is the thorax, this is the abdomen. And uh, these are the little limb buds of a fly embryo. So these cells, there's some cells in each of these nests. This is about 100,000 cells or so. There's some cells in each of these little limb buds that are eventually going to give rise over a period of days into the legs of an adult fruit fly. And I have to tell you this because the experiment that Matt did was to test whether or not the Artemia thoracic and abdominal gene could work in the same way as the fly thoracic abdominal gene. And that particular gene is called UBX. So UBX is a fly hox gene, and it's normally active in these cells, and it prevents appendage primordia from developing in this region of the embryo. So Matt cloned, isolated the Artemia version of this hox gene, UBX, the Artemia or crustacean UBX and the fly UBX gene and tested whether or not they had uh, similar functions in repressing appendages in early insect embryos, in early fly embryos. Here's what he found. If he used the fly UBX gene protein and turned it on, these, this, uh, these little nests of cells, those are those little limb buds. So this is another marker for those limb, limb buds in a fly embryo. And uh, if he turned on the fly UBX gene, it repressed the development of those limb buds. Whereas if he took the brine shrimp, this crustacean form of UBX, which was very similar in much of its DNA and much of its protein sequence, it had very similar protein, uh, it had very little effect, very poor repressor of limb bud development in a fly embryo. However, if he made a hybrid and uh, where he had mostly brine shrimp and a little bit of uh, the fly UBX protein, this region just downstream of this homeobox sequence, that also worked as a repressor of limb bud development. So even though this, this, this brine shrimp UBX couldn't do it, it looked like there was a special part that had changed during evolution. 
And based on these experiments and, and some other data that I don't have time to talk about, uh, Matt uh, proposed that what, uh, that what happened, one of the things that happened, of course there were many things that happened, the evolution of a crustacean-like ancestor to uh, an insect-like creature with three, three walking appendages, uh, was that there was this little part of this protein that mutated, this uh, Hox protein that mutated, over a series of many steps, to be sure, that gradually removed limbs from this region of the uh, crustacean insect ancestor so that you eventually ended up with hexapods. There were many other things that happened, but the proposal is that this was one of those little special little bits of DNA in an organism that you could mutate and eventually get macro-evolutionary changes in body patterning and get the insect body plan. Now, an even more dramatic example of this, um, to me at least, uh, is seen in the comparison of snake uh, and uh, chicken embryos. So remember I was telling you about Hox C6. So Hox C6 is a regular old Hox gene in chickens and mice and humans. We all have it. And in, in mice and chickens, it's expressed in the middle of the thorax, the part of the thorax that doesn't develop either forelimbs or hind limbs. And uh, a couple groups of scientists have looked to see where this Hox C6 gene is turned on in the developing snake uh, body plan and developing snake embryos. And what you can see is this spectacular result where all, these perp all this purple region is where Hox, this Hox C6 gene is, turned, is activated instead of just in a little zone, but all throughout this long snake. I don't know actually how many curls there are here <laughs> in this. Uh, this is a garter snake, uh, developing garter snake. But what this also indicates is that you can change where the Hox genes are produced during embryogenesis and uh, have dramatic changes in the body plan. It's certainly not proof, and you don't get proof with um, evolutionary experiments in large part because evolution is a historical science. So all we can do is closely approximate and get evidence for uh, our theories in evolution. But what has happened over the past couple decades, which I want to impress you with, try to impress you with, is that the power of molecular biology when it's been applied to the study of embryology has really allowed us to look so in so much detail that we can see these amazing similarities between organisms as disparate as fruit flies and humans and see that we really have these links uh, in our early body patterning that tell us something about the organisms that we came from hundreds of millions of years ago. Now, of course, um, I have to end this with Darwin as well as starting it. And... Uh, so Steve mentioned this quote at the, at the start, and uh, so Steve started with it. I want to end with it. <laughs> As a grandeur in this view of life, Darwin wrote, in the very last paragraph of The Origin of Species, that from so simple a beginning, so from that little worm-like creature that was crawling around in the muck 600, 700 million years ago, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been and are being evolved. And the other grand thing that I hope I've tried to impart tonight 
is with the new tools that allow us to look directly at the genes and proteins, where they're produced, the functions they perform, we can now really learn a lot about, you know, it's not just a metaphor anymore. It's, it's, uh, we can really learn about, a lot about what those simple forms were, what those simple animals looked like, what genes they used to control their body pattern, and teach us more about our relationship to other organisms on Earth. Thank you very much. Are there any benign or beneficial mutations that have been seen uh, from mutations in homeobox genes or Hox genes? I, excuse me? We haven't seen it in our laboratory. So, you know, all the mutations that we see in Hox genes and flies, we pick out the most extreme ones, usually. Uh, so those antennapedia flies with the legs growing out of their head, you know, not surprisingly, those aren't the best breeders, you know. Uh, and, I can only imagine what they look like to a female fruit fly or a male fruit fly. Pretty bad. Uh, they do live for quite a while, amazingly. Um, and uh, they will actually breed with, if you force them to breed with other fruit flies with legs on their heads. But uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a serious question. I, I don't know of any examples of you know, improved mutations that people have seen in these genes. You know, mutations in these genes that would improve an organism, an organism's fitness or make a better part. But I think the reason for that is that, you know, this is always going to occur in a small series of steps during normal evolution. And uh, so any of these changes are just going to slightly change. You know, there might be some subtle advantage to have a slightly larger leg or having some claws on your leg to better grab a female or something. If you, I'm thinking about if you're a, an insect uh, that uh, would help you pass your genes to the next generation. And people just haven't looked carefully for those kind of subtle things that would be caused by a hox mutation. Subtle hox. Oh, there are benign changes. Oh, yeah, you can have benign changes in Hox uh, genes. You can have mutations that don't do anything to the survival, the, as far as we can tell, the fitness of a, of a, a fruit fly. Like, can you give examples of benign changes that you've seen? Benign changes, I mean, there's many uh, amino acid substitutions. You know, you change the sequence of the DNA so you get a slightly different protein made. So you can, you can have a string of amino acids in a fruit fly hox gene, and you eliminate some of them. There's no change in the fruit fly. It doesn't change the shape. Um, yeah, so the question is, uh, you've got the hox genes controlling pattern on the head tail axis. What do socks and shocks and all the rest of them do? There's a, there's a wide variety of functions. So I talk about packs controlling eyes. There's uh, some, some, some of those other families control heart development. So it's expressed in the developing heart of both fruit flies and uh, Ralph Bodmer at, uh, at the Burnham works on this, uh, developing heart of fruit flies, and the, the, the similar gene in mammals expressed in the developing heart of mammalian hearts. Uh, there's genes that control appendages. There's genes that control the development of certain regions of the brain. So, uh, so uh, some of them are much more specific than hawks, although each one of them you know, still has kind of an abstract function. You know. Uh, in the sense that, you know, turning that PAX, human PAX gene on in a fruit fly doesn't make a, anything like a human eye. It makes a fly eye. So in that sense, it has a, an abstract function like the Hox genes. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah, so the Hox genes, so what, what Hox genes do? How do they perform their functions? Uh, the Hox genes uh, uh, get turned on in specific zones. Within those zones, the, the, and the, they make proteins. These proteins are transcription factors. They're, they bind to a lot of different regulatory DNA. So they turn a lot of other genes on and off. So they're at the top of a hierarchy, a control hierarchy. And presumably in you know, the head region of an animal where a Hox protein is expressed, that Hox protein turns on 100 genes that are head control genes. You know, they're going to make um, lips and gums and us and silver teeth. Whereas another Hox gene is going to be turned on and, and it's going to make a protein that binds to hundreds of different thoracic genes. It's going to make ribs and so forth. It's kind of a simplistic way to, to describe it. But there's no question that they're at the top of a regulatory hierarchy and there's many levels below them and they're, they're making sure that those genes get turned on and off in the right patterns. Well, to make sure that we don't spill into evolutionary time, uh, we'll have to end it here. I know there were lots of questions that we couldn't get to, and uh, I'm sure that Dr. McGinnis uh, would have an opportunity to answer at least a few of them if you care to come down to the front. But once again, I ask you to uh, join me in thanking him for giving us really amazing lecture. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.